wonderful stories about Moses, the way that God providentially brought him into this world. And due to the faithfulness of his parents, especially his mother and older sister, how God delivered his people through Moses, how he shaped Moses in the wilderness, how he encountered Moses at the burning bush. We could talk about the plagues. We could go all the way up into the point Moses dies at the age of 120 and focus on his life. But this morning, I want us to think about an attribute of Moses, but more importantly, a characteristic of God that I think we need to sort of call back to our attention. And that's the fact that Moses, throughout this experience, although we know a lot about his failures, he relied on God. He cried out to God for help. This happens on a number of occasions. It happens in Exodus chapter 15. The first 18 verses of that chapter in the aftermath of the crossing of the Red Sea, there's this wonderful occasion when the men of Israel follow Moses and they sing praise to God. They talk about the victory that God had given them. And then Miriam, shortly thereafter, leads the women of Israel in a very similar expression of praise. We can go to the end of Deuteronomy, near the end of Moses' life, and look at chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, especially the first 43 verses, and see there again the way that Moses, after Joshua, is appointed his successor, and after he's been told he's going to die and be buried by God on Mount Nebo and will not enter into the land of promise, we still see there expressions of gratitude and praise and thanksgiving and prayers on behalf of his people. And then there's those unusual places, like in Revelation. Revelation 15 and verse 3, when you have the angels singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb expressing their praise and gratitude to God for His loving kindness and presence and patience. Perhaps it needs to be recalled that Moses, even with his failure, even with his impatience and the fact that he sometimes overdid what it was God called him to do, he was a man of prayer. We see this in Exodus chapter 33. And just imagine, we're not going to take a field trip this morning. I don't know how we could accomplish that, but that we're in the wilderness of Sinai. And, and here Moses is, surrounded by a wandering and murmuring people who are frustrated. They've lived their whole life in Egypt, and they've been provided for despite the captivity they experienced there. And here Moses is trying to intercede for his people and asking for God's help and presence and deliverance. And in Exodus 33, verse 13, you get that prayer from the lips of Moses where he asks God to make his will, make his character known to him. And so that they can, uh, in effect, trust that God will be present with them as they wander through the wilderness. We could spend a lot of time thinking about Moses this morning, but I think there's something much more important for us to talk about. Because we're going to be spending time in a psalm written by Moses, Psalm 90. It only has 17 verses, and we're taking a line from the very last verse of Psalm 90, verse 17, where Moses in beseeching or asking for God's favor, ask that God show favor upon his people, we're going to talk about what it looks like to seek God's favor. Can we learn something from Moses, even though we're separated by culture and time and we're nowhere near the wilderness of Sinai, and we can't necessarily nail down exactly when this prayer was uttered in the life of Moses, but we know it's a prayer. The very first word of Psalm 90 is the name of the Lord, Adonai, Lord, he cries out to God. And we're going to see a petition here that I think not only can serve as a helpful framework for how we might petition God and ask for God's favor even now, but perhaps this is another way of thinking about how to live as disciples, 
How do we walk with God? And how do we trust in God? And, and I don't want to pretend like I'm giving you some kind of secret formula or some kind of one-size-fits-all methodology that must be applied every time we pray. But I do think as we read through Psalm 90, we see the four key components of discipleship. We see the four key components of what it means to approach God with enthusiasm and yet asking for Him to be present. We want to trust in Him. We believe in His power. And so we're going to walk through this psalm together, Psalm 90, rarely departing from the text of these 17 verses, and just simply ask, how can we today seek God's favor? How can we call out to Him? How can we walk with Him as disciples? Well, notice how it begins. This is how discipleship begins, and this is truly how prayer as a petition offered to God ought to begin with the simple expression, we know you. We know you, God. Now, the reason I chose we is because as you look through Psalm 90, this is clearly not just the prayer of Moses. This is a prayer of Moses for the people. Throughout this psalm, we see the plural language that's used there, that's applied there. We and us and our, as he on behalf of his nation petitions God. But we can certainly apply this as individuals. We could say as a disciple that the first step, the foundational step is to say, Lord, I know you. And it's because I know you, I know your faithfulness, and I know your character, and I know that you are persistent and that your will is perfect in every way. I know you, Lord. Notice how Psalm 90 begins, especially the first two verses. When Moses writes, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. I've just got to pause and note that this could be a separate sermon. Don't get nervous. I'm not going to do that to you this morning. But throughout the psalm, there's the language of time. In almost every section, in nearly every verse, there's this reminder, whether we're talking about days or years or months, that continually, that consistently, God has been present. And here Moses says, and just imagine, we don't know where he is. I've often wondered, could it be around Numbers chapter 20? Because in Numbers 20, he loses his brother Aaron at the beginning of the chapter, his sister Miriam at the end of the chapter, and in the middle he fails by, by striking the, the rock instead of speaking to the rock. What an awful day. What an awful series of events in the life of Moses. Maybe it's around that time. We don't know. But regardless of whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley, whether we're in the land of Canaan or in the wilderness, this walk with God in our prayer and our discipleship begins by saying, God, you're great. You have been our place of refuge, our dwelling place. Some translations may read our place of hiding. Generations before the mountains. And here we are surrounded by the mountains in the wilderness. Before these mountains were born, you gave birth. I love the imagery there. You gave birth to the earth and to the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. There's no doubt. And so as we begin, notice that Moses comes back to creation. You're the God who made all these things. You're the God who's been present with us. Really difficult not to think about the wilderness, right? And not to just apply this to Moses. I think we struggle in a similar way, maybe in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon, to only think about Solomon's experience when really wisdom literature calls us to participate in that and not just think about Solomon. Psalm 90 is not just about Moses, but for just a minute, imagine there he is. He's learned to trust in God. He's surrounded by mountains. He's learned that God is present, that God has been a help to him, and that he has blessed him in an incredible way. That's what we see Moses do here. And on a side note, I know sometimes we might think that it's just 
too repetitive or too perhaps uh, silly to try to describe God when we pray, but there's value in that. Just read through the Psalms. Look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 5. Look at the way that throughout Scripture we see these petitions being offered to God and how in prayer the petitioners will often spend time describing God. Why is that? Well, because we, the more time we spend describing God, the more we can't help but praise God because we note all of those attributes. You love someone, there's something good about learning to describe that person, focusing on the positives. You have a coworker and you're trying to form a relationship, being able to focus on the positives. And I think there's something to be said by the fact that as Moses begins, as he offers this prayer to God, the more time he can spend describing God's faithfulness and His goodness, the better. Perhaps if we're struggling with our faith, something that would be helpful for us. Perhaps if we're struggling with prayer and, and we want to make it simply a, a, a list of things we need and we fail to perhaps praise God in the midst of that prayer, one simple exercise would be to sit down and to try to list all the things we can think of that might describe our mighty and faithful God. He is the Creator. He is the one who's been present with us. There's something wonderful about focusing on Him. That's where prayer finds its value, its foundation. God, we know who you are. That's why we want to walk as disciples. God, we know who you are. But notice that's not where Psalm 90 stops. And I think there's an appropriate transition when you get to verse 3 and you move down through verse 6 that suddenly Moses isn't just talking about God, we know who you are. He pivots and says, God, we know that you know who we are. You know us. You know the way we are. Just notice what he describes here in Psalm 90, starting in verse 3. You turn back man into dust. An echo of Genesis 3.19 and the curse that we see there in the garden. And say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You've swept them away like a flood. When have you seen that, Moses? Well, it wasn't that long ago that the army of the Egyptians was swept away in the Red Sea. We've seen God defeat His enemies. We've seen what happens when man tries to stand in the way of God. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it's gone. It fades and withers away. There's a powerful contrast when in prayer, when in our discipleship, we're able to say, God, we know who you are. You are faithful. You are holy. You are righteous. You are permanent. Your will is perfect but you also know who we are. We are frail. We are going to return to dust. We are not permanent. We are not powerful. Now look, I don't want prayer to be a time where I'm thinking about me because after all, it's God that I'm turning to in the name of Christ. It's God that I'm petitioning because I know He's all-powerful. I know His will is perfect. God, Your will be done is what we pray. But there's something valuable in that moment in saying, God, I need You. I am not sufficient for the task at hand. I can't fix this problem. You know that I'm a human being. You know me personally, that in my frailty, I've sinned. I've rebelled against your will. That's why I'm in the wilderness, because of my rebellion and my abandonment and my lack of faith. But in contrast to all of that negativity about me as I reflect on myself, I know that you know who I am. And despite that, you love me. Despite that, you show loving kindness and grace, not only in sending the manna and the quail and making the bitter water sweet and providing for us with five miracles before we even got to the Red Sea, but by simply being present and being faithful 
and being better than we deserve in every way. And as we continue reading, notice that there's a, a, a nice transition. We go from, in the first two verses, God, we know who you are, and that's why we're petitioning you. We know that when we pray to you and ask in your name, according to your will, that you're faithful, that you're holy, and that you're righteous, and we know that you know who we are in our frailty and in our sin. But then there's this moment starting uh, here and around verse 7 where we see a transition to the acknowledgement that this isn't just something that applies to us, it applies to all people. Not only do we know who God is and He knows who we are, we know something about ourselves. We're willing to confess communally that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we've rebelled against Him. Notice how as we continue reading verses 7 through 12, this, this, this gets described. Moses says, speaking for the community of Israel, we've been consumed by your anger, by your wrath. We've been dismayed. You've placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Here's that time language again. For all of our days, verse 9, have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it's gone and will fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that's due you? Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. God, you know, we know who you are. You're faithful and you're holy. You made the world. You've been a place of refuge for us. You've been consistent in your power, persistent in applying your will. You've pursued a relationship with us. And God, we know that you know who we are. But let us just communally confess the problem of the human condition. Once we've reached the condition of accountability, we understand that we deserve God's judgment. We deserve the wrath and the anger and the fury that gets referred to so many times from verse 7 down through verse 12. And there's nothing we can do to fix this problem. There's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves from the depravity of sin. There's nothing we can do. There's no map or compass outside of God's will that gets us out of the wilderness. And when you consider these things, it's rather depressing, isn't it? I think that's why Ecclesiastes is such a tough book to read. Because Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of life under heaven or under the sun without God. Without God, what's there to live for? Without God, what's there to die for? Without God, what hope do we have? And so as we think about prayer or a disciple, what it means to walk as a disciple of Jesus, it starts by saying, God, you're great. You know who we are, yet you've loved us anyway. And we know who we are. We're willing to confess. Just follow the order of prayer. We begin by praising Him. We then also acknowledge our weakness and our reliance upon His will because He knows who we are and He acted in our favor. And then third, we confess. We confess our iniquity. We confess that we deserve His wrath. We confess that we've not been faithful to Him in the same way that He's been faithful to us. And then there's verse 12. You know, it's easy when you're going to add on to your house to count the cost to add up what it's going to take, how much time, how much money. It's perhaps easy to count assets and to know, okay, here's what's in the bank, here's what we have. It's, it's easy to count a lot of things, but for some reason it's difficult to count the days. That's the language, that's the prayer, verse 12. Teach us to number our days. I just think Moses surely in the wilderness had a lot of time to think. Despite the murmuring when the tabernacle was said and the glory cloud of God wasn't moving and they're sitting there, and he's thinking about time and, 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 and the past and what God might do 
in the future, he's learning about waiting on God. And that's what's difficult, right? Because in the arrogance of youth or the busyness of life, we begin to assume that our days are infinitely numbered. And I don't think Moses here is saying, hey, you've only got 70 or 80 years. I think that's probably poetic because Moses lives 120. He's an exception to that rule. But in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of God's span of eternity, that's just a drop in the bucket. He's saying time's short. Life's a vapor to sound like what James will say later in the New Testament. And so because of that, not only God, do we know who you are. And we know that you know who we are. And we recognize who we are as those who have sinned and fallen short of your glory. We need you. We need you. We need you to act in our lives. Look at the way Psalm 90 concludes, starting in verse 13. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we've seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. What are you saying, Moses? What are you asking God to do? Specifically, Moses says, God, rescue us. Here we are in the wilderness. Sometimes it's difficult to know, God, if you're there. Some of us have been waiting a long time. It's difficult for us to know, God, what's around the next mountain. Where are we heading exactly? We've heard about this land, but rarely have any of us seen it. And, and the ones who do see it don't bring back a great report. At least 10 of the 12 we see later on in the story that Moses records by inspiration in these books. Return to us, God. Redeem us. We've suffered. We know that you can solve this if it be your will. We want to trust in you and rely on you. We want your blessing. We want to know that you're present with us in our lives. I think that it's important that in our petitions to God, in our discipleship, in our walk in faithfulness, we learn to ask God for help. But notice that's not where this begins. Now there may be those moments. We have those prayers. We have those days in our walk where the world's on fire and we're suffering and struggling and we begin, God help me. But notice that as Moses prays, he acknowledges before he even asks for help, God, you have helped us. You're, you're faithful. We know who you are. And we know that you've acted in our favor despite our iniquity. And we know what a mess we are. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet despite that, Father, we ask your help. We beg you, show favor towards us. We trust you. We love you. I think that it's rather simple and perhaps we're, we're not exhausting all the things that are involved in prayer all the things that are involved in walking as a disciple of Jesus. But if you look at those four expressions, it's a pretty good summation of what it means to trust in Jesus. It's a pretty good summary of what it means to come into the throne room of the Father in the name of Jesus with the help of the Spirit and petition Him and ask, Father, will you act? We know who you are. You're good and holy and mighty. Let me begin to try to describe. I know that you know your will, but... The more I describe you, the better it is because it's a great, healthy, and holy reminder of how God-honoring my life can be if I reflect your will and your character. And we move from that saying, God, you know us. You know our iniquity, our struggle. You know me. Let's make this more personal. I'm not looking around at my brothers and sisters wondering what sins they've committed 
what they may have omitted from their walk with Christ. I know my sin. I know my sin better than anyone else other than God. And yet God in His loving kindness and mercy extended at the cross as we reflected around the table this morning. He paid that penalty for us communally and individually. And as we respond to Him, we say, God, help us. We need You. We need You now. Act with favor towards us. You know, it's not really about Moses, is it? And it's not even really about the children of Israel, even though these passages have context. This is about how do I walk in this world trusting that God will redeem and restore me as He has promised to. Some days that's tough, isn't it? Some days it's just difficult to know what to say. How do I start? This might be beneath you. I don't know. But if you're struggling with how do I start? How do I start developing a healthier prayer life? How do I start reflecting on what it really means to be a disciple? May I just challenge you? May I invite you to take time to describe God? Give it your best prayerfully. Describe Him in every way you possibly can. And as you approach His throne, mention those things. It's healthy in the marital relationship to describe our spouses, to affirm them. It's healthy in business and work relationships. So how much more, how much more beneficial is it to spend time reflecting on the reality that God is great, but I'm a sinner. And despite that, He showed loving kindness and favor towards me. And I can trust as I seek His favor that as I approach His throne, I know in faith that He was with Moses. I know in faith He was with those other men and women who through the years have walked by faith tirelessly, trusting in His protection and His will. And I know even now, in 2019, with my iniquity and struggle, with our collective burdens, with the things that happen around us, that God's faithful. Are we longing for His presence in our life? He's here. Are we desiring for to be able to walk with Him in holiness? That's what He desires too. Seeking His favor begins with knowing who He is. And I'm excited at the blessings we've experienced together this year and seeing so many bow their will to the Father's will. Say, God, I know who you are, and because of that, I can't help but respond. I can't help but run to your grace and faith and to acknowledge that you meet my every need. Before I even knew I had a need, you had acted in my favor. And so because of that, I'm not earning anything meritoriously, but I'm responding to your grace, and I'm saying, God, I believe. I believe what you've said. I, I believe that your ways are better and higher than my ways Isaiah 55, 8. And so because of that, I'm going to turn from sin. And I'm going to use my lips and I'm going to use my life to reflect the reality that Jesus Christ is exactly what He claimed to be. And as I walk as, as a disciple, I'm going to come in contact with the blood of Jesus in the waters of baptism and be added to that kingdom and be forgiven of sin and empowered with the gift of the Spirit. And from that day forward, walk with trust as a disciple leaning on you, acknowledging that your strength makes up for my weakness as long as I'm willing to walk according to your will and confess daily the blessing of knowing who you are. Let's walk with Him. Let's seek His favor. You know, it's true that in our world there's a lot of desire to seek the favor of those around us. I love goodwill and hospitality and fellowship, but there's no favor greater than the favor of God. Let's spend time focusing on Him, asking for His help, how he acted before we even knew he had a need. And this morning, whatever that need, let's continue to seek his faith as Moses did in Psalm 90. 
What a wonderful God we serve. We come as together we stand and sing.